This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Matthew Winner. He's an elementary school librarian and the host of the Children's Book Podcast. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from MoMetrics and from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help by going to circulatingideas.com slash support or patreon.com slash circideas. With library budgets constantly shrinking, it's getting harder and harder to provide the resources your library patrons want and need. That's why the folks at MoMetrics Test Preparation created the MoMetrics eLibrary. Through their eLibrary portal, MoMetrics offers study guides and practice questions for over 1,800 different exams covering college entrance, graduate school, nursing, medical, teacher certification, civil service, I'm counting this on my fingers, I'm running out of fingers, and many other careers and fields of study. All fully customizable and at a fraction of the cost of printed books. It's like having an entire library of test prep materials all at your fingertips. So, save space, save paper, and save money with Mometrics eLibrary. To get a free demo and 10% off your first purchase, visit goelibrary.com and let them know you came from Circulating Ideas by using the promo code PODCAST. That's goelibrary.com, promo code PODCAST. So, Matthew, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I, I, I mentioned this in our little pre-talk that um, I had a first question for you that um, when I listened to your interview with Tommy DePaola recently that I promise I already had on my list and I'm not copying your question. But um, I always wondered, when did you know that you wanted to work with children? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there there must have been lots of moments that that felt like the right thing. But when I was in uh, undergrad, I had declared an English major with an education minor, um, because I just felt like being in education felt like the right thing to do. I love learning, and so it made sense to be back in the classroom. And I was working at a before and after school daycare and sort of naturally was drawn to writing programming for them. Uh, and so I felt like there's something to this whole working with children and being up close with their brilliance that I just I can't stay away from. So... <laughs> So yeah, I don't know. It just I was I was drawn to it, I suppose. And what was your path to librarianship? I mean, what what made you want to be a librarian? I know you kind of got you got your education degree first. Was that was librarianship kind of always in the cards, or did that come up later? Uh, it was a total surprise to me, but I also didn't miss a minute of of downtime to get into my graduate work, uh, you know, as a teacher, uh, at least as a teacher in the state of Maryland, we have to uh, begin work on our master's within the first five years of of being hired. Um, but I, being, again, a lifelong student, thought, well, there's no reason after being in school for, I was an undergrad for six years. I did two years as an English major and then transferred to a, a university that would allow me to be an education major. Um, but in doing so, I had to uh, sort of redo some of the basic liberal arts requirements um, and also give them more money. <laughs> of <laughs> but, course. <laughs> but um, when I when I was in my first year of teaching, I actually interned at the same school where I was hired. And I worked closely with the school librarian. And she said, you know, 
you got to do this, Masters. Uh, you would be perfect in the library field uh, if you'd ever consider it. And I thought, ah, that sounds great. I admire the heck out of you. Why not <laughs> try it myself? Um, and I think it really was because I had such a great mentor in her. Her name is Louise Wall. She has since retired. But, um, yeah, yeah, she's a good one. Yeah, it's always great to have somebody like that in your life to help give you guidance, even if they're not realizing they're giving you guidance. I just needed a nudge, apparently. A nudge that I didn't even know that I needed. But that first summer after my, my first year of teaching, I began work in my graduate program, and I have never looked back. Well, I think a lot of people who might know you from your podcast, the Children's Book Podcast, but you're also obviously a school librarian. Um so did you know, when you got into librarianship, did you know automatically, yes, automatically, I'm going to be a school librarian. I'm not going to be a public librarian. I'm going to be a school librarian. I'm going to be in schools. Yeah, my program was actually in school library media. Our uh, county has a number of cohorts with, with local universities. And that uh, program, the school library program, school library media program at McDaniel College uh, in Westminster, Maryland, was was really the program that picked me. I feel like the one that felt like this is the place to go. And I'm grateful I did the, um, the facilitator of the program, Mona Kirby, uh, was a really wonderful force in my life. My professors were really, uh, outstanding and inspiring. And, uh, it was a really, it was a really powerful program to be going through while at the same time, uh, to be completing my second year of teaching, my third year of teaching. It was it was a really <laughs> wonderful program to complement that. And I think you, you, you've said in the past, I think on your on your blog, that you use your podcast with your kids in school. Is that right? And you use that as a teaching tool? Well, the podcast, I mean, the podcast really started because of working with my students. I uh, loved having I loved meeting authors at our state library conference I loved reading books to my students ever since I was teaching fourth grade I started off life as a fourth grade teacher um for two years and then I've been in the school library uh for 12 years um but but that link to literature has always been significant um to me and then finding out the story behind the book became really important to me as well. Uh, and then really everything I do, because it's so centered on my learners, uh, even my own podcast, I'm I'm very comfortable sharing with people that I record it for me first and for them second. I'm really grateful that everyone else listens to it. Right. But I want to know the story behind the book um, because I see my students in the book and I see their story in those stories. And so uh, I started podcasting with students, I don't know, maybe like seven or eight years ago, um, having them record audio through GarageBand and, and do things like that. Um, but it, it, it wasn't until about five and a half years ago that I felt like I should probably do a podcast of my own. What if I did one? So you, so you were already using podcasting with your students as like a teaching thing before you had your own podcast? I mean, I guess you would call it podcasting. I was recording audio and posting it through like a MIDI player on my classroom website kind of right. thing. 
it wasn't really what we would think of as podcasting now, but it was definitely recording audio and sharing and then teaching them to record audio and share. And by that point, I was already pretty heavy into listening to podcasts. Mm -hmm. And so that that format, that medium of storytelling and communication was definitely becoming ingrained in me. Well, I think you can tell when you listen to your podcast that you can you can feel your enthusiasm. It comes, it really shines through with all your, um, you have really insightful interviews and you obviously have a connection with children's literature and with the authors. And you can tell that you love talking to who you're talking to. I'm, I'm glad that comes across I, because, oh, I think you're about to say it. Um, let me, let me perhaps anticipate your question and say that I can't have a guest on the children's book podcast because of the format. I can't have a guest on that. I don't a, really deeply connect with their book or be really deeply connect with them. Um, that, that is the through line of the show because I'm recording such intimate conversations. It's really one-on-one. It was inspired. I've shared this before, but the whole format of the podcast was inspired by being at library conferences and being at the bar after, you know, in the evening of the conference and just hanging out with people and talking right. and, and realizing when you hang out with authors, they just sort of naturally, share the stories behind their books because they've lived those stories um and and wondering like why isn't this recorded we have we have author visits where they present very formally their process but not 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 the soul of the story behind it and so i read gosh i must read like maybe 150 books a month uh, a whole lot of picture books and a lot of graphic novels. And then middle grade and YA, I listen to audiobooks constantly. I'm a very slow reader, though, so I don't really read in print right. uh, middle grade and YA. But um, from all those books, a lot of them will connect with me. Uh, some will really – I'll feel an urgency. I have to see if there's a chance that I can talk to this person behind this book. And so I send a lot of emails and and. Uh, I'm really grateful to have had the guests that I've had on. I'm really grateful to have had the the interest from the guests in in the format that that we have for talking about the books because I think that it really is much of a private conversation that then turned around and shared with the world, and it takes a certain amount of intimacy for that for that to work. And so I'm I'm grateful uh, that that all these guests I've had have really agreed to and welcomed that level of intimacy. You did successfully anticipate my question fellow professional podcaster <laughs> Yay, <laughs> um, points. Uh, but a little while back um and you wrote about this on your blog you did a diversity audit on your show to look at it and see how it matches the population of your class and i think you found that it didn't match the way you wanted it to can you talk about why you did that in the first place and how it's changed how you produced the show yeah you know there's this great quote by maya angelou that now i share all over the place but someone at some point shared it with me, and it stuck. And that is, when you know better, you do better. And I think that there was a whole lot that I didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. Right. That's a phrase we use in education. And I I was making this podcast, and I was really proud of the conversations I was having and getting to talk to these people that I love their books, and I um, can't wait not only to champion their book, but to connect the reader with that face, that face behind the book, because I grew up not really knowing that there were faces behind books. Um, so I made it a point always since the podcast started to have when an episode posts, 
have the face of the author or illustrator, the face of that guest, uh, very prominently on on the episode, so that my students could see this is what authors look like. Only the the first year, yeah, the first or second year that I really formally was doing um, podcasting with my students, and I pulled up the my show, my archive of 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 you know my wall of guests. And I was talking to them about it, and it 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 wasn't even. I think it was either the first or the second year where I started realizing, my word, this guest list does not look like them, and that is problematic to me. I didn't see it before. I was I, there's nothing at all wrong. Let me make sure I say that caveat here. There's nothing at all wrong for championing books you love, but my mission is to make sure that my students see themselves in books. And that means I must be mindful of who I say yes to specifically to bring onto the show because everyone uh, in publishing is working hard to make the very best books. And I'm connecting with a ton of books and I'm privileged to be able to have choice and say, well, I've got 10 books I really love, but I only have four spots open. So which four do I think are are the ones that right. I, you know, need to hear? I feel that compulsion to talk to that person, um, but also in me is that which ones do I know or do I anticipate are going to be the important ones for me to learn from? Talking to a new voice, a person who uh, has a different skin than I do, or a different gender than I have, or different experiences that I have. Um, and ones though that my students might see themselves in, uh, might see that this vocation, this future, being a writer, being an illustrator, being a publisher, that could be you too. Here is a person that does look like you, that has experienced things that you have. This person could be you as well. And most importantly, Steve, I know that when I have that wall of guests, that that communicates whether I want it to or not. It communicates my values. And I wasn't comfortable with what I perceived that it was saying, which is, to be frank, I felt like my guest list was saying, the books I think are the best and the people I think are worth talking to are white people and are primarily men, people that look like me. And of course, that's not at all what I feel but I had to check myself because that is what my platform was communicating, whether I wanted it to or not. And so I started counting. Are you aware of the um, publisher Lee and Lowe? Yes. Amazing. For anyone listening that doesn't know them, they are an outstanding publisher of of multicultural titles, of diverse titles, of own voices. And also, they have a phenomenal blog, a blog written for teachers, a blog with resources for teachers. It is outstanding. And one of said resources was a fourth or fifth grade teacher uh, who had done a diversity audit of her classroom library, where her students took collections of books and just counted uh, of all these books, looking at the cover alone, how many of these books have only white people on the cover or have people at all on the cover or have people of color or have boys or have only boys, all these different 
things just to count. We're just getting data. We're not making judgments at this point. Uh, but then after all the data was collected, she gave them uh, five or ten questions in small groups just to reflect on. What do you see? Uh, what roles do you most see the the boys playing on these covers or the girls playing on these covers uh, or the people of color playing on these covers? Asking questions just to cause the child, the student, to reflect. But of course, inevitably, uh, it was causing me to reflect as well. Um and so from that, I set out to do a diversity audit of the podcast to uh, really, I use the, the U.S. census data to hold up against the U.S. census categories of ethnicity, of how they were allowing people to identify themselves, which is not ideal, but it's, it's a, it, there's a lot of data there. So right. that was the, the place that I could start. Um, and I um, then used my previous guests the biography, the bios that they had on their pages, um, to, in a rudimentary way, assess what my representation looks like on the show, and it's something I still do today, um, and something I'm very mindful of today, and I think that it's made the show more reflective of my values. I think now, the show is more reflective than ever of my students, of my mission, of my values. Yeah, I, I think I, I've done similar. I've never done it like a, for my podcast with a direct using good data, and I really need to do that sometime. But I always do try to um, focus on not just white men, especially since this is a library podcast and white men are not a, even a majority. So why am I having so many white men? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. <laughs> so I also realize using my just because I personally work in a public library, I tend to have a lot of public libraries on. But the mission of my show, I think, is to showcase all of librarianship. And so I do make a special push to have people like you on who are school librarians or are academic librarians or um, special librarians and law libraries, health libraries, things like that, because I want to show the diversity of the profession in all kinds of ways, not even in just people, but in the way that people do work. You know, it's like asking people who work at the... They said no to me, but the Coca-Cola Museum has a librarian, but I said, you know. They do? Cool. So I just think like that. Like, well, you, you want to ask people like that. I, I should say they didn't say no. They didn't answer me. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I'll try them again sometime. Um, but yeah, I, I think I've, I've kind of been inspired by your audit to do a more direct audit. And if you can do it for 400 something episodes, I can do it for 140. So. And once you've done it, it's easy to keep up right. with. You just keep up. I've I've gone the other direction too of because I feel like people have stake in my show. I mean that quite literally I have a a Patreon page where 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 there are some individuals that are directly funding the show, the bandwidth, the the opportunity to uh go interview on location. Because I have that I feel like I have a responsibility to my listeners to show them. And so I've taken as you found on my blog and I uh uh will probably revisit uh, this year, um, as much as I'm doing it on social media as well, um, I will um, continue to be public about that because I feel like, again, as a person with a platform, I have a responsibility to show that I'm being thoughtful about this and that when you support my show, that's what you're getting. You can love it or hate it. You can disagree with it or or wrestle with it. Whatever, whatever is going on, I want to make sure at the end of the day that I feel good 
with the message that I'm putting out and how I'm using that platform. So I think you considering libraries that way from all different angles, I think that's awesome. And I'm really grateful um, that, that you keep us school librarians in mind because we are unique in that group. And I've been to plenty of ALA conferences. And whenever I go to ALA proper, because, you know, we have AASL, we have our school librarian right. group. But whenever I go to ALA proper, I always... Um, you know, look for us rowdy school librarians because <laughs> we're always there. Uh, we're always, I feel like, pretty easy to, to pick out of the crowd. And um, I think we're a good bunch of people. So so thanks for thanks for lifting up our stories as well. Well, and what I always hear from school librarians a lot of times is that it's great and you love connecting with the kids, you love working with the parents, you love working with the teachers, all that kind of stuff. But it is sort of a, in a professional context, it's a lonely one because you're the school, the school librarian at the school. You don't have you might have a clerk or maybe if you've been a big school, you might have another librarian there, but you don't have a lot of professional colleagues to talk to. So things like conferences are really nice to be able to talk about library issues with each other. And that's part of what I want to kind of be able to do too, is let people share their stories here with other people. And so they can hear from the things that you do with your classrooms and say, Oh, it's not just me. Our profession only gets stronger by us talking. We can't operate in silos, yes. in vacuums. Um, we, uh, I feel grateful for my professional learning network. One of the things I did very early on with the encouragement of a colleague was get onto Twitter so that I wouldn't be alone in the school library, um, so that I could find that professional learning network and learn from them and rely on them. And then wouldn't you know, you spend like months or years talking on social media and every once in a while you actually get to meet face to face uh, at conferences. But the nature of, I feel at least how school librarians and educators use Twitter is, is that when you're on Twitter, you're still the same person as when you're in real life. So I've, I don't think I've met yet a, a friend from Twitter, a colleague from Twitter who hasn't been uh, just as genuine and wonderful in real life, uh, if not even more so. And so that's, you know, go find your people. Don't be alone. Right. <laughs> who wants to be alone? Yeah. And, and I, I do, I do like that your diversity audit came from another good decision you'd made early on to put those pictures up. Cause that was sort of just a, you could look at your site and see, Oh, look at all those white people. Look at all those men. <laughs> and it was just in your face that that needed to be done. And now you can look at that same decision to show those pictures and say, look at all the, the beautiful rainbow of people, the beautiful uh, diversity of people, the whole range of people that I have on my show now. So. Right. And we're only talking though, to be, to be frank, we're only talking uh, about skin tones here. Right. This is not, I, I, I don't, I don't feel, and I, it's not, it, it, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to be like, um, putting a special symbol on the episode right. when I have a non-binary guest on or something like that. That's not, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do also, nor are you implying that by, by doing that. But what I do really love is showing the person's face alongside their book to just be like, here, this book that we read in class, that's the person, that's the voice behind this book. When you listen to me talking to that person, I want you to picture that voice. Uh, Cause it's, you know, picture Tommy DePaolo with his like round spectacles and his wonderful like white fuzz all over. <laughs> um, picture Oge Mora with uh, her fresh out of art school um, glow and her smile and her, uh, the photo taken in 
uh, like in this busy city. There's just so much, there's so much there that I just love. And I, I hope that in listening and in checking stuff out like that, like the photos, like the books that, um, it, it allows, it allows readers to love the book a little more deeply as well. Right. Yeah. yeah and, and I, right. And, and as you said, I didn't mean to imply just that, but I, I do like just the visual, the, the, the visual nature of it, because a lot of times you're talking, not always, but a lot of times you're talking to people who are, um, especially with the picture books, the people who are the author and the illustrator. And you can kind of, I find it interesting sometimes when you see somebody and you compare them to their art, you can kind of see them in their art sometimes, you know, you can kind of say, you look like a person <laughs> that you would draw. <laughs> I mean, oh, and yeah. a lot of that comes obviously from looking in a mirror all the time. And that's how you see people from the beginning is in your family and things like that. But it's interesting sometimes to see just even as stylized as some of them are, you can almost see them in their art sometimes. Yeah. One thing I, I will say too, though, that is something you can notice and is something that I don't track data on, but I'm aware of it is making sure that I also represent different ages. Yes. I want, I want, I want to show that it is men and women and it's people of all colors and also of, of all ages that there are people fresh out of school, but there are also debut authors who are older than I am. And that's, that's a cool thing. And that's something that, that, you know, can be celebrated uh, in, in all those different ways that we do. Uh, So yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, uh, I guess there's a lot of, stuff going on it's it's same with what the podcast was before as you were saying it was speaking a lot of things that i wasn't even aware that it was speaking i think the podcast now is speaking a lot of things and and every once in a while i'm surprised by oh yeah i guess it's saying that too and that's that's a good thing in this case (laughs) yeah and i I think you do do a good job because i think you must realize that there are a lot of children that listen to your podcast because you will give sort of content warnings at the beginning sometimes like you recently talked to um I'm going to butcher his last name, so I'm not going to try to say it, but Jarrett, who does a lunch lady in graphic novels. Oh, Jarrett Krasowska. Yes, Kras- yeah. Krasowska. I have some Eastern European in my family. I should know how to pronounce that. <laughs> um, but he, you, you had him on recently when he was talking about his graphic novel, which is not for the same audience as Lunch Lady. And so you mentioned that at the beginning of the show to say, if you're listening to this, to listen to me talk to the Lunch Lady guy, that's not what we're going to talk about here. And we're going to use some adult words that perhaps you should not be listening to if you were a child. <laughs> so yeah i mean the i well you know you have a podcast so you know steve that it's really as a podcaster it's really really hard to tell who listens unless you survey your audience which i try to do every year you can't really tell who listens and if a if a teacher is playing the podcast to a class of kids when you survey them it's still a teacher so it's very hard to find that information but i'm very very aware that Teachers have played my podcasts uh, when a person is coming to visit the school for a vi- for an author visit, when uh, they're doing an author study, when they're having like a special lunch bunch and they're playing it. And so um, as you're browsing that, that, um, that, that archive, I'm not necessarily recording interviews with an uh, with a, a child audience in mind, I mean the right. podcast episodes are usually like forty five minutes. It's not <laughs> super child friendly, no. but um, I want them to be able to be there at the table with us if they want to be. And for that YA audience that Jarrett's uh, graphic memoir uh, is intended for, I want the teacher to know that like, hey, we use curse words 
in this conversation that are directly from the book. So let me tell you two things. One, that book includes some curse words. And two, we're going to read them aloud. Right. Um, I personally don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But I want to make sure I save space for people that might not be comfortable with that. And so I think a lot of, as much as I like to say that I'm like totally ignorant of everyone else that will potentially listen to the episode while I'm recording because it's just <laughs> me and the guest, I am certainly aware that uh, how the episode is used um, takes on so many different shapes that I want to make sure that, that I'm, I'm taking care of the listeners uh, because because a lot of them are are people I care about a lot. Right. Um, so I wanted to do, I wanted to shift to another topic real quick and talk about something from a few years back when you were a White House champion of change. Can Hey-o. can can you talk about that um, experience and how that kind of came to be and what your project was as part of that? Oh, we can back up and and just out that this was like the craziest year ever. <laughs> this is like the year that. As unbelievably grateful and humbled I am by that year, it is. You just have to own. It's a year that's. It's it's a year that happened that's never going to happen again. Um, I was. Uh, I wrote a. I co-authored a book, uh, years ago, called "Teaching Math with the Wii," the Nintendo Wii, uh, because a lot uh, at the time and still a little bit. I uh, in the library I was using video games to engage my learners. Mm-hmm. So a lot of potential with um, using that tool. Kids are already way into video games, but what if we could use the tool to engage them in math conversations, to engage them in reading conversations? And now we're recording this on uh, a week before the hour of code, which is exactly that, coding games. So, you know, look where we've come. But um, I wrote that book and had done all of this expansive work. Um, uh, I... Um, co-moderated uh, a, a virtual book club based around gamification. I was doing all these different things with video games. Uh, and I was named a library journal mover and shaker. So yay! Amazing! Library journal mover and shaker. Huge! Um, that same year um, I was collaborating with a, a colleague over Skype to do a TED Talk style student driven project uh we posed or we uh each in our neighboring schools one in indiana and one here in maryland um asked children if you could uh how do we phrase it something like if you could do anything in your school to help the world what would you do and my students decided they wanted to investigate energy conservation and uh my collaborating partner sherry gick in indiana decided they wanted to look at recycling and so our students, third grade in each school, um, decided, brainstormed these projects that they thought they could do to not only understand more what, in my case, it looked like to use energy at our school, what it cost to use energy at our school, and how we could save money at our school. And actually, my students took it a step further and said, and if you saved money, we could use it to buy this stuff. We could buy this many iPads and this many Wii, uh, Nintendo Wii, and this many whatever Um, and they presented their information. The classes presented to one another, and then the classes presented, um, to the teachers of their schools, to the community of their schools. Um, we submitted that project to ISTE, the, uh, International Society for Technology and Education, and 
we were selected uh, for their uh, collaboration award. Uh, their their uh, special interest group, they have a, a library special interest group. Um, and, and so Sherry and I met actually for the first time at ISTE, which was taking place the week before ALA was taking place for the Mover and Shaker Award. <laughs> uh, and um, so Sherry and I, we collaborated for years. And this one project was really intensely collaborating um, and only met there for the first time right there. And then at the Mover and Shaker uh, banquet thing at ALA, um, it was at the bar that night with a bunch of library friends that one of my um, school library colleagues and a fellow blogger and now a fellow podcaster, Travis Yonker, uh, who has a blog called 100 Scope Notes on School Library Journal's blog, and who has a, a podcast he co-hosts with Colby Sharp called The Yarn, mm-hmm. um, he sort of said, that's awesome that you did Mover and Shaker. What's next? What project you work on next? And I said, you know, I've been thinking about podcasting a whole lot. And he was like, why don't you just do it? And so I did. And in that same timeline, I was invited to be part of a group for the White House Champions of Change. I happened in that program, a program um, that uh, Barack Obama started, um, that was a weekly program inviting guests from all different uh, vocations and, and interest groups um, to come to conversations at the White House to share what they're doing in their field, how they're impacting learners, sort of a, a, a state of things in education, a state of things in representation, in diversity, in all these different things. You can find it all online. Amazing program. I was one of eight librarians uh, selected for this like panel thing. Um, and I was, in fact, the first school librarian to ever be a part of the Champions of Change program. <laughs> and I went and spoke about gaming in the classroom and engaging learners through video games. So sorry, that was a long tangent, but I hope I hope the thread connected yes. to get us there. Yeah, no, that's very cool, though. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have an autographed photo of Barack Obama on my desk today. <laughs> so did you actually did you actually get to meet him? We he was at I forget what country he was at ah. the day that we were there. Uh, we did not get to meet him, but um, received all sorts of really kind and personalized uh, mementos of the event, uh, including um, a, a sincere message from him from one of his White House staff members that you know he regrets that he couldn't join us, but as we know, libraries are important to him and important to Michelle, and just it was. It was one of those things that really stuck with me. Actually, here, this is a cool thing that stuck with me. Um, from that day until the end of his time in office, I was on the White House Christmas card list. And so I got Christmas cards from the Obamas oh my gosh. Um, for the remaining years <laughs> he was in office. And I kept them. And because you didn't ask, but I know you're curious, they were the most amazing Christmas cards. They were pop-up Christmas cards. Amazing. Wow. So um, that was a thing. That was a thing in my life that, like, I... I tucked every moment in in that the happened that year and onward. I just tucked it all away in my memory. And, you know, it, it's one of these things. So I've been in education for 14 years, and I've just learned that every year is something new. The path that you're on um, is not the path that anybody else is on. And so you don't know what's what's coming in the future. You just got to kind of keep doing what you love. I never would have known that I would have been doing this podcast for now five and a half years. Um, but it's it's 
what fuels me. It's what I look forward to each night when I get a chance to, to talk to somebody, when I get a chance to share that. Um, but again, five years ago, I, I never would have thought that that was in the cards. Uh, and so I don't know what's going to happen in five more years, but like, man, it's been a fun ride. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that was a big year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a big year. And, um, I've really had to make sure that I've worked introspectively to make the work I'm doing count for me. That's yeah. sort of why the diversity audit and that work I I think I would say is probably the most important work I've done in my life yet. Um, this work I've done with uh, attending racism trainings uh, to undo racism, to work with uh, how to um, to work in diverse populations and uh, restore justice in um, understanding poverty and and just things like that that cause me I, I tell you every day. I just understand and learn and appreciate more and more, not only the role I have as an educator working with children, but also all of these amazing places that my kids are coming from experiences that I've never gone through that, uh, that, um, cause me to really appreciate the fact that they showed up in school and really appreciate the privilege that I have every day to teach them because they chose to show up. And they chose to be in my class. Yeah, well, I think you're and you're a teacher. I think for the same reason you're a podcaster, and that's the same reason that I tell people when they ask, "What's what? What do you need to have to podcast?" The first thing I always say is passion for the subject, <laughs> because if you don't have passion for what you're going to be talking about, you're going to get bored real quick, and you're going to be one of those podcasts that that comes out the three episodes. And then three months later, it comes out with the fourth episode, and then it's gone and never comes out again. <laughs> so you have to have a passion for what it is. And you can tell in your podcast that you obviously have a passion for this and a passion for children's literature and a passion for that connection that you've talked about between the author and their work. Cause that's, you can feel that not only you're sharing how you, how it connected with you, with the author. And a lot of times you can tell the delight in their voice when they, somebody got what I was writing. <laughs> so you made that connection and you can tell that they love hearing that their work did what they kind of intended for it to do. You know, um, I think it's all about seeing people, yeah. seeing them and affirming what you see, seeing their beauty, seeing the thing that they made. This is, there's, it's no different as you're calling out too. the way I treat students, my children, um, is no different than the way I try to treat every other person I meet in my life. Um, I want to make sure my kids are seen and that they see that I see them. I see them there and I love them. I love them for exactly who they are. Um, and I want to be my very best because that's what they deserve. Yeah. Every one of my guests deserves that. And every person that I choose to collaborate with likewise deserves that. So it becomes really important that I know when to say no, that I know when to say I, as much as I love this idea I'm not the right person for it. And I got to step back so that somebody else can have the opportunity. That's, that's a lifelong lesson. That's one I continue to, to wrestle with, but it's, it's, it's one that, that I know is not going to fail me. If I keep coming back to am I the right person for this? Yeah. Is this my yes? Or should this be somebody else's? Yes. 
Well, speaking of best, I know there are way too many for me to ask you what your favorite book is now. But I am going to ask you, when you were a kid, what was your favorite book? Well, the book that immediately comes to mind is a golden book called Toodles the Tugboat. <laughs> and the reason why it was my favorite is because my dad read it to me every day. Or in my memory, he read it to me every day. Uh, it was a book that he allowed allowed me the pleasure of being read to over and over. And so that just stuck. It was a bond. That book was a bond between us. And so I... I could barely tell you what the book is about um, from my memory of it. But I could tell you that it was about my dad and I bonding. <laughs> that, and that's the most important thing that it was about. Yeah. And isn't that what all of our books, isn't that what we, what we hope for for all of our books exactly. that we have in libraries, that we just, we, just, we just want you to see yourself. We just want you to bond with it. Absolutely. So Matthew, thank you so much for being on the show today. If people would want to follow up with you to um, ask, ask you any other questions that they might have, how can they get in touch with you? Find me on Twitter. It's where everybody <laughs> finds me. I am at Matthew Winner. Or, this is quite obnoxious, but it comes with having a name like mine. You can just Google Matthew Winner, because I'm kind of the only one out there. <laughs> and I've got quite a strong internet presence, so I'm obnoxiously filling your <laughs> Google search results. Um, but no, I'm easy to find. My my email address is on uh, my about page on my website. I uh, am a teacher full-time, though, so it's difficult to get to email. Uh, but I'm on Twitter all the time. It's the way that I uh, sort of text message the world. So find me there. Or just listen to me and the guests that I have on, because I'll know you're listening, and I appreciate that, too. All right. Thank you so much, Matthew. Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place or work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Mometrics Test Preparation for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. To get 10% off your first purchase and a free demo, visit goelibrary.com and use that promo code podcast. That's goelibrary.com promo code podcast.